Hello, everyone. Welcome. This is on. Is it working? Probably not. Okay. Brilliant. My name is Andres Velasco. I'm the Dean of um, the School of Public Policy here at the LSE. Uh, I welcome all of you, and I have to say that I am very, very excited about tonight's event, um, not only because we are discussing probably the most topical, relevant, and immediate subject that uh, we could be talking about, namely populism, where does it come from, and what can we do about it, but also because we've got two of the leading scholars worldwide on the subject who also happen to be um, people who might have had the privilege to know for, um, for quite a few years. Uh, back a few years ago, uh, I had the misfortune of being a professor at the Kennedy School on the other side of the Atlantic, and I had the privilege of having an office on the same floor as Pippa and one floor below Michael. Um, <laughs> so we had... Um, you know, I wish I could say that we saw populism coming. We sort of have did, but not quite. But um, um, I learned a great deal from them back then, and I'm sure we will all keep uh, learning a great deal from them tonight. Um, the format of tonight's event is going to be um, as follows. Each one of the speakers will take about 15 or 20 minutes to um, give, give us a big picture take on... Um, on the subject, then we will have a little dialogue here. I will take the liberty of asking each one of them a question or two, see if I can get them to fight, uh, and then we will um, open up uh, to Q and A. Um, so we're going to go in the following order. Michael will have the, um, the floor first, then Pippa, and then we will do what I just said. Uh, I don't have a bio of each one of them, so I'm going to uh, present them rather informally. Uh, I will say that uh, Michael Ignatiev is the, are you call the rector or a president? Rector. The rector of the Central European University uh, in Budapest and Vienna. Uh, and therefore, that makes him not only a scholar of populism, but also a victim of populism. Um, because as many of you uh, may know, the uh, authoritarian government of Hungary has been very busy trying to get the Central European University banned in Hungary. And as a result, uh, the bulk of that operation is nowadays being moved to Vienna. Michael was also a professor uh, at the Kennedy School for many years, where he directed the Carr Center for Human Rights. And of course, he also had a life in uh, politics. Uh, we often uh, share our experiences as recovering politicians. Uh, he was the leader uh, of the Liberal Party of Canada, his home country. And of course, as such, he stood uh, to be Prime Minister of Canada. So uh, he brings uh, academic acumen, practical experience, political experience to the subject. Michael, the floor is all yours. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> They promised me a podium, but LSE is so advanced, there's nowhere to put my stuff. So um, I will intone like a preacher from my text. Um, I'm also aware as I walked in the room, I, I suddenly had that realization that I've made a strategic mistake of massive proportions. I'm in a room of British citizens and other citizens acutely involved in the Brexit crisis, and I'm about to say things are not so bad. 
and that seems like the wrong place to be. But that's what I got, so that's what you're going to get. It's not so bad, and every one of you disagrees immediately. So there we are. All right. Um, I want to offer an interpretation of the challenge posed by populism to liberal democracy, and my focus will be on the way in which populist revolt targets two commitments at the heart of liberal democracy, one to representation, to the idea of representation, and the other to the rule of law. And my title is Democracy versus Democracy, so that implies my conclusion, which is that the populist challenge to these commitments does not present us with a battle between anti-democratic and democratic forces, but between two opposing and competing visions of democracy. Many of you will know the work of Jan Werner Muller and Kas Muda, and they've helped us to understand that populists pit a majoritarian idea of popular sovereignty based in the people against self-serving elites who administer the rule of law and representative institutions. This is actually a common story through the history of representative democracy. There have been recurrent challenges to democracy in the name of democracy. And that raises then a question of asking how serious this challenge is. Uh, are our institutions in a state of conflict? Op option one. A state of crisis? Option two. Or in a state of incipient collapse? There's a lot of alarmist talk around, and I'm trying to figure out just how bad it is. And I'm going to tell you it's not so bad, and you'll disagree. But I think we need to be clear about analytical distinctions between conflict, crisis, and collapse. Um, many of you know that Levitsky and Ziblatt, a fine book, and Yasha Monk's fine book, have argued that democracy itself is in peril. And my argument is that liberal democracy, at least in the democratic heartlands of the North Atlantic, is actually functioning in its normal state. Because I simply want to say that conflict, even crisis, is the normal operational functional state of any liberal democracy worthy of the name. And it's because we have an assumption that liberal democracy ought to operate in a state of, of static equilibrium that we get alarmed analytically about conflict, but liberal democracy is there to regulate and manage conflict and keep it this side of violence. And we're not there yet. So democracy is not dying, although in the single party state that I know something about Hungary, it's in pretty terrible shape. There you can speak of incipient democratic collapse, but not in the countries of the North Atlantic <coughs> that I'll be talking about. Um, so that's the menu. In our standard, standard understanding of liberal democracy, what makes a democracy liberal, obviously, is that majority rule is limited by the rule of law. And in this, in this model, democratic legitimacy comes from two sources, not one, from the will of the people and from conformity to law. And these sources of legitimacy are supposed to be complementary, but in fact, they're almost always in conflict. There's a, there's a contradiction about legitimacy at the heart of liberal democracy that constantly resurfaces um, so that power in a democracy expresses the will of the people 
while power protects the people because it's exercised in conformity with law. That's the happy story in which the two forms of sovereign uh, legitimacy sustain each other, but in fact they're in constant conflict, and the populist moment exposes this conf conflict between two competing legitimacies. Another characteristic of liberal democracy that follows from that is the way it, its institutions demarcate a line between the empire of politics and the empire of law, between areas of public decision-making that must be le left to politicians and the areas that should be left to courts and judges. And this institutional order, an empire of law and an empire of politics, implies a certain sociological configuration. Professions like lawyers, judges, politicians, civil servants, and the media who execute their role in the division of power. And liberal democracy is the constitutionally regulated competition among power elites within the rules set up by a division of power, and that's supposed to protect the freedom of ordinary citizens. So the rule of law implies a caste of professionally trained jurists and bureaucrats, and the idea of representation presumes another caste, professional caste of politicians. And so very frankly, liberal democracy is elitist in the specific sociological sense that it requires trained professionals to accomplish key democratic tasks. This is the feature of liberal democracy that populists constantly attack, but it's anything but obvious, especially in a room like this, it's anything but obvious how a highly complex modern society can be governed at all unless it's governed by trained elites who are held accountable to the people's representatives. Attacks on elites are very popular, and uh, certain folks among us start playing into that. It seems to me a terrible mistake to do that. We should be proud, resolute elitists in the specific sense of believing that you cannot operate a representative democracy without the skills acquired in places like this. And then the question becomes that elite recruitment has to be open to all ranks. We're not nearly meritocratic enough, not nearly open enough, and our elites are not nearly accountable enough. But if you start abandoning the necessary principle of professional elites in the empire of law and the empire of politics, you haven't got any liberal democracy that can be administered at all, in my, in my, my view. Now, here, if you'll allow a little personal note, what populism has laid bare is the degraded state of liberal democratic representation. I've been a member of parliament. I fought three elections, won two, lost the third badly. But I can tell you the, the shocking experience of being a member of parliament is to understand just how powerless you are, how subservient you are to party discipline and to executive control. And there is an ongoing crisis in representation in a liberal democracy, which I've lived. You can't do anything for the people who put you in the chair, not really. And I think this is an under-reported reason for the sense of disaffiliation that has led to the populist upsurge. There's a crisis of representation at the heart of liberal democracy,
But the populist solution, which basically is to replace representation with various forms of direct democracy, seems to me to be incoherent. The right way, on the contrary, is to strengthen parliaments, to weaken the grip of party discipline, and enhance the capacity of representatives to articulate the concerns of voters. And that return of parliament in Brexit may be a, uh, an attempt to, to re-empower representative democracy. Um, now, I think the, the other thing I've already hinted at but wanted to say strongly is that the public regards the conflicts that are inherent to these competing principles of legitimacy and the competition within elites in the management of power, they regard this conflict with dismay and when it gets noisy and unpleasant, they, they react to it with very great dismay. And from there, there's a short step to saying the system is in crisis. This is where I think we loose talk about that fails to distinguish between crisis and actual breakdown enfeebles our understanding of what's going on. My sense of this is that liberal democracy is in permanent crisis because it's built on competing principles of legitimacy and competing principles of, uh, between elites and complete competing empires of law and empires of politics. And that's how it keeps people free. That conflict is integral to how systems ought to operate. Um, now, the populist challenge seizes on the conflict and seizes on the disillusion and seeks to make it worse. A populist political strategy is to turn majorities against minorities, to create an us through politics that can be mobilized against a them. But again, that seems to me pretty standard political politics. Not very nice, not very pleasant, but that's been going on for a long time, and we're not seeing the sense in which that has self-correction built into it. That is, Donald Trump is running against every minority in the United States. There are a lot of minorities in the United States. You keep doing that, you begin to aggregate and compose and constitute your own nemesis. You won't get there if it's only the minorities, but you will get there if majorities look at that politics and thinks this is damaging to our interests, namely our interest in civil peace. So that the argument that this kind of polit populist politics must sweep all before because it works on an us against them underestimates the countervailing capacity of minorities and alarmed majorities to say, Wait a minute, you are beginning to put the stability of the entire system in question. And that will be the ballot question in 2020 if we, for God's sake, get a decent candidate to stand up and say that. But there's no fatality in this story. This is a matter of getting political arguments to counter the populist tide in this area. Um, so let me, let me uh, jump on and jump on. You see, I've got a 40-page talk. <laughs> and, and no podium. And no podium. <laughs> and, 
and I'm standing in the way of the real feast, which is Pippa Norris, so I'm going to have to curtail what I'm doing here. Um, I'd like to say a little bit about um, the conflicts between the empire of politics and the empire of law, because that's a very salient and neuralgic issue right now as the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom is hearing a case which brings that whole issue into question. I just want to emphasize how absolutely normal it is for liberal democracy to argue constantly about where the boundary line between law and politics exists. That is, in some sense, the crucial question in liberal democratic politics. And there are a whole set of encrusted procedures that define the boundary line between the empire of law and the empire of politics. When judges overturn a law, they usually take care not to be prescriptive about remedy, leaving it to political authority to determine how to fix the situation. But angry criticism about judges overstepping and critiques of the, the illegitimacy of judge-made law are absolutely standard features, the normal operation of any democratic system. You see it in the United States, you see it in, in Britain, and in a sense, the um, populism has just come into that argument and turned it into a social conflict uh, between elites. But it starts in the demarcation problem of separating the empire of law and the empire of politics. This boundary in, is a crucial issue in Brexit. The, a critique of the rule of law has been central to the populist revolt in Britain. Here's a country that essentially invented liberal democracy, and here I am, the poor colonial boy, endlessly grateful for a thousand years of democratic experimentation by Britain, which it seems a little too hasty to throw away, or at least a little, a little failing to understand what it is you've created here. The colonial boy feels a passionate anxiety that you guys don't understand what the hell this thing is you've built and you'll throw it away in a fit of absence of mind. There you are, there I am. Uh, all right. Um, influential voices in the, on the Brexit side have argued that democratic sovereignty should mean freedom from the malign and undemocratic influence of judge-made law. You know all about that. It's not just the domestic rule of law, it's also the ambit of international law, uh, hostility to European law, but also to international human rights law. And, but again, this hostility to transnational law and to international law is an absolutely rooted feature of unease about the spread of human rights in every liberal democracy I've ever seen. In Canada, which as you know is a perfect country, there is extreme anxiety and irritation when international human rights law is applied to our domestic, uh, domestic uh, shame, the aboriginal question. So the populist anger at judge-made law is, is, fits into a much longer story, this battle line between the empire of politics and the empire of law. This feature is a feature of populist argument across Europe. Herbert Kickel, the right-wing Freedom Party Minister of the Interior in the last Austrian coalition, spoke for populists everywhere when he remarked this winter, it is up to the law to follow politics and not for politics to follow the law. That is a sentence that essentially defines the populist agenda right across 
Europe, but it is an, a sentence that comes out of the essential antithesis between law and politics that's built into liberal democracy as a system of rule. Now, I want to conclude because I want to get to the, the difficult issue I'm skating around. If I am saying that liberal democracy is a system of inbuilt conflict, competition for power, battle between elites, fundamentally over the boundary line between law and politics, at what point, this is the urgent question in Brexit, at what point do we cross the line? From conflict, which is endemic to the system, from crisis, which is frequent, to actual breakdown. What is the, what is the moment? And there it seems to me, as an outsider, and you will know much more about this than I do, that it's relatively clear what the breakpoint is. Were the Prime Minister to refuse to abide with an act of Parliament, were the Prime Minister to refuse to abide to a ruling of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, you would be going from crisis to conflict to breakdown. Then the question becomes, how is the breakdown resolved? It is resolved essentially by the people. This is, where it, this is where you go into scary territory. Because inevitably that will become, if, if he were to do that, you would have to go into an election. And that would be one of the ballot questions. Is this man, does this prime minister understand what a liberal democracy actually is? Yes or no? And the public would have to decide this immensely complicated and difficult question. And one has to anticipate the possibility that they will say, don't care. We want out, don't care. This is a legal nicety. This is a pettifogging little problem. And then you're into a place that I think everybody in the room should be concerned about. Because that is when you go from crisis to conflict to breakdown. And in a breakdown, the only essential arbiter of that is the people, ultimately, and the people's judgment. So it's not enough that the law is broken. The difficult thing is that then the people decide that question. And the consequences of that decision could actually begin to unravel the whole could rewrite the boundary between the empire of law and the empire of politics and fatally undermine the countervailing institutions, the counter-majoritarian institutions that guarantee freedom in this kind of system. Um, I see that I've come to the edge of my door. I have fantastic stuff here. It goes on and on and on. But, but this would be uh, violating my obligations to two friends, so I'm going to stop here. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michael. We now have the privilege of listening to Pippa Norris, whom, as I said um, earlier, is a professor of politics at the Kennedy School uh, at Harvard. She is also an LSE graduate, um, so uh, she has come home. Um, she studied politics here under Michael Oakeshott. Um, and mm, 
Yes, that's yes, right. Yes, you did. A um, long time ago. I didn't, um, I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> and uh, we very much look forward to what she has to say. Um, thank you. Also about Brexit, surprisingly. Uh, thank that's you. Right. Please. Thanks, Andre, and thanks, Michael. Michael is always a difficult act to follow. Very elegant. And fortunately, I also will offer, with respect, as we always say, some points which might differ. And in particular, I'm going to share your anxiety. I'm going to say that I have now been living under Trump for what seems like a forever, and then Brexit, and then, of course, Hungary and Poland, Venezuela, Turkey, Italy, France. I mean, we're not just talking about Brexit, although this is going to focus on Brexit. But in all of these countries, we see destabilization, a rebreaking of the established forms of politics, and what I would argue is a pushing against democratic norms. And I respectfully disagree that it's not about a coup. It's not about a single act that's going to pull down a liberal democracy. It's the day-to-day -day cuts. It's a death by a thousand cuts, as Steve Levitsky would argue. And democratic norms that we took for granted in what was kind of a democratic assumption that we were all, quote, the gentleman's constitution. And we find that some people aren't playing by those rules. So I'm going to focus on the perfect storm and what that might mean. And I'm going to first talk about why I think there are three issues which are really in crisis in Britain. And again, crisis is a strong word, and I try to avoid it. But I think in this case, it is something which is um, justified. Then I'm going to talk about, in particular, different arguments you hear all the time about why, in particular, Brexit is happening. Is it the leaders and the crisis of political class? Is it issues and events? Is it the institutions, like majoritarian electoral systems, which produce zero-sum games? Is it the economy? A very common argument where we have some, a number of colleagues here. We're going to continue to talk about that tomorrow. Or our argument, which is it's a cultural backlash. It's a change in values, which is exacerbating generational conflict, educational conflict, and a basic clash of identities. I'll give you a little bit of evidence if we have any time for that. If not, I'll reserve that for tomorrow's workshop and how the parties are responding. And it's like a force of nature. <laughs> I just love this image because in some ways it's both serious and ridiculous, um, which seems to me a perfect encapsulation of, of Brexit in certain ways. So why is this not politics as usual? Michael argues in particular that all democracies have conflict, divisions, crisis, and they resolve them absolutely. I think there are three reasons why we've not come to any resolution. The first is this isn't a policy issue where we differ on things like the environment or the economy, or issues where we can bargain and compromise and say it's just politics as normal. Instead, this is about our identities. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself very much nationalistic, whether it's make America first, or, or, or a strong uh, English identity, or do you see yourself as cosmopolitan, international, somebody who's a citizen of the globe, somebody who might work in three or four different countries and have two or three different passports? And that basic difference also exacerbates the difference between what I'd argue is authoritarian authoritarianism, certain practices and values that kind of break the lines of liberal democracy, and those who believe in a pluralist, diverse, liberal. So those are values which are strong, and they can't easily be resolved. The second thing, though, is that in Britain in particular, we of course have the unwritten constitution, which I blithely talk, uh, taught about, as many have, and said, oh, it's fine, it's just, things work, you know, we don't write things down, that's for, that's for foreigners. We just kind of, um, <laughs> we, we started it after all, we know how to do things, we don't need the Canadian Constitution or the Australian Constitution, or, or certainly we don't need all of the conflict over the American Constitution. Well, it turns out, it doesn't work. 
And in particular, what we have seen, just as we see with Trump, is the executive pushing certain issues which are going to really threaten how we do things, whether it is the suspension of parliamentary scrutiny in this critical period when, the, when there should be much more transparency rather than less, whether it's attacks on the impartiality of the courts, we've all seen that in the past, the Daily Mail headlines, but of course increasingly now even ministers questioning whether or not the courts are political. And we've seen, of course, the, the threats ultimately to the unity of the United Kingdom, and this from the Conservative and Unionist Party. I mean, that is fascinating. And people in public opinion polls saying, I want Brexit, so Scotland goes its own way. Okay, Northern Ireland, oh well, you know, sad. But England is left. That seems to me a fundamental crisis of how we do things, the rules of the game that we're not accepting anymore. And particularly, and we won't go into the court decision right now, but say the court, the Supreme Court says, okay, the suspension was illegal, and then the government comes back and says, okay, let's do another one. <laughs> That seems to me challenging the rule of law in a way that we see exactly under Trump with the continuous th threats. And then lastly, the other issue, which is again alluded to in Michael's talk, is that everybody says, well, I've got democracy, I'm the legitimate group, I am the quote-unquote, how often have we heard, the largest democratic vote in, in Britain, 17.4 million, we voted to leave democracies on our side, the populist vision. But of course, that's totally contrary to the vision of liberal democracy, which is that even if you get a majority, you still have give and take, you, you make, you make um, conciliation, you have bargaining, and therefore there's two visions, one of which is Westminster is the elected body able to uh, implement the mandate, and populist rule is 52% is it, the vote is it, any other aspect of democracy doesn't count. And, I, and those three which come together are why I think it's a perfect storm. Um, and why we're going to have problems in getting out of it, and why there's so much intolerance, and why people are identifying now as remain or leave. I mean, this is very strange if you think about it. Not are you conservative or liberal, or, or are you um, north or south, or where do you come from, but remain and leave, as though somehow it's a real identity, um, which people now, now say. If I was going to say, how many of you, by the way, see yourself as remain? Put your hands up. Well, there's a surprise. Um, how many of you see yourself as leave? And how many of you refuse to have either of those two? Yay, okay. Just a few. Nearly everybody's got this new identity of what you are. And it's about the enemy versus us. This is unhealthy for any, any liberal democracy. So what explains how we got into this pickle or difficulties? And here what we've got is many different explanations. I'm going to flash through a few. And I'm going to talk about the ones which I think are critical. Oh, right. Um, and it's from our book. So this is our ad. Um, very reasonable from Cambridge University Press, $29. Um, I'll give you a little bit about the theory and a little bit about the chapter on Brexit. And I've done it, of course, with my colleague, Ron Kinkelhart, that I've worked with in many, many years. So why do we see that there's, there's these sorts of issues? Well, how do we explain Brexit? Let's blame the leaders. It's very simple. The media does it all the time. And we can certainly say that if we had different leaders, then we might have a very different outcome. You can imagine if it had been um, a more moderate uh, Labour Party, then there could have been a Remain coalition that could be quite credible, with the Lib Dems and others on their side. If Nigel Farage hadn't founded UKIP and then Brexit, and hadn't uh, then threatened the Conservative Party at particular junctures, there would not be this crisis. And of course, Boris Johnson's role is very well known. Trouble is, this is a very limited explanation because, of course, leaders 
are of different qualities over the years. And if it's suddenly just a crisis of leaders, why should we have all the leaders from all the major parties having this crisis? So it's an explanation, but it's not adequate. We can blame events and we can blame the negotiations and the way they went on. For example, the fact that Theresa May refused to have or did not consider a cross-party alliance at the very beginning of the process. That would be natural. You bring the Lib Dems, the SNP and others on board. You get an agreement with the EU but across the parties and then you'd have a much better chance at a parliamentary majority. So maybe there were blunders there. And of course, we all know Cameron's mistake when he casually you know, said, let's have a referendum. Why not to kind of mitigate UKIP? only to find his own win, only to find, of course, that the complacency was, didn't work. So we can blame events, but that's again not inadequate, because how did those events happen, and why did they happen, and what's the structure in which they happen? So let's blame instead the institutions. Now here I think we're getting warmer in our explanations, and in particular the lack of experience of Britain of referendum. If there'd just been a few constitutional changes in how Britain had held that referendum, we would not be here. For example, in many countries, if you have a constitutional referendum, you don't have a simple majority, you have a two-thirds majority. What that means is you absolutely have to have a consensus to change anything. And it's a pretty normal rule. If you're in Switzerland, you take it for granted. And in Britain, we just said, oh, well, we'll just have a referendum. And, you know, why not? We'll make it up as we go along. Um, and, you know, it doesn't work. We might have looked at some continental countries, as we call them. Um, and again, of course, if we look at the choice, it was obviously a black and white, nobody knows what leave means, that's why we're all at loggerheads still. Now again, is that inevitable? No. New Zealand had its referendum on electoral reform. First question they asked in 1993, do you want to change the electoral system? Yes, no. If yes, then here are some options. And they gave them three or four. And you can have ranked choice voting, which you say one, two, three, eh, easy. Um, instead of which we say, you know, it's black and white and leave happened. Okay, what does that mean? Ah, oh, we're struggling. And of course, then we have all the issues of the different regions voting in different ways. And the majoritarian electoral system, which reinforces the whole majoritarian culture of Westminster, which is winner take all, zero sum games, I win, you lose. Lack of compromise, lack of bargaining, and therefore the lack of parliamentary acceptance. And again, if the remainers in parliament had used ranked choice voting, when the Ben motions were going through, um, it would have had a result as opposed to everybody voting for this one and, and there wasn't a majority and then for this one and there wasn't a majority and so on. So why they didn't talk to a few constitutional lawyers, I don't know. But again, I think it's partly the Westminster system is so imbued in this majoritarian culture that even though they're very bright, one would have thought, uh, they never thought that there could be some other ways to run our basic institutions. So a little bit of blame. Do we blame the economy? And here, of course, I'm going to argue no, although some of my colleagues are going to argue yes. And this is just a few little things. Was it, for example, economic inequality? How many times have you read that in the, in the Grawny out of many other papers and many other things? Well, I'm sorry, but if you look, for example, at income inequality, um, it, it turns out in 2016 that, in fact, Britain was very average for Europe. It wasn't particularly high. There were other countries which are higher, and there are other countries which are lower. Uh, as you might expect. If you look at patterns of economic growth, which are the blue lines, was it bad during the period running up to 2016, 2010 to 18? You can see, was it great economic growth? No. Was it reasonable? Yes. So the, some of the macroeconomic explanations don't work. And again, if we look at household disposable income, some of the evidence doesn't work. Now, again, we're going to get into the weeds of that tomorrow. And I welcome that engagement. But again, blaming the economy 
doesn't actually fit, particularly at micro level, when you ask individuals. So what's my argument? What's the explanation? Firstly, that Brexit isn't just Brexit, <laughs> unlike me. It's actually a global phenomenon. It's something which is happening in countries around the world, and we know that it's happening in some of the most affluent countries with wide welfare states which are cradle to grave. It happens in Sweden, it happens in Finland, it happens in Norway, where the party is in power, in government, in coalition. It happens in Western Europe, in France, for example, with Marine Le Pen. It happens in Eastern Europe, um, with Fidesz and other parties in, in, in Hungary and Poland and the Czech Republic, and it happens in the Mediterranean as well, even recently in, in uh, Spain, but also in Italy. So all of these are a universal phenomenon throughout liberal democracies. So it can't just be a British crisis. It can't just be a British explanation. All of these, by the way, the only thing that seems to be in common with some of these is they're all blonde. There's a very interesting correlation uh, between being blonde and being, um, with one exception, and being a populist or authoritarian. This is, this is the vote. And the timing also doesn't actually help to explain Brexit. There have always been these parties around. This is the share of the vote on average, which I calculate across 32 liberal democracies. They were always fringe. You remember the 1970s, we had a worry about the BNP and the National Front in Britain. Very racist, very nasty, came out the woodwork, but never got very far other than a couple of councils. What changed was the 1980s, and then the number of votes increased, the number of seats increased, they started to get into government, and it's gone up more. So we're looking at a long-term phenomena, not just something which happened overnight in 2016. And it's happening around the world. Modi in India, the, the issues which are going on with Kashmir, of course Bolsonaro with the burning of the, um, uh, the Amazon, issues of Nicolas Maduro, Venezuela used to be one of the strongest democracies in the region and is now a basket case in terms of its fragile state. Rodrigo Duterte, who is killing drug, but also innocent groups and overriding, and of course, Erdogan and so on, and many others. These are just illustrative. So, what do all these guys have in common? Essentially, I differ a little bit also from Michael, because, and I differ, by the way, from Kasmud and some of the standard definitions. I don't think that populism is an ideology. I'm not even sure it's a set of ideas. What it is is a rhetoric. It's a form of speech. It's a way of communicating. It's direct, and it does have the two elements that Michael mentioned. In other words, it's anti-establishment, whoever they are. By the way, all of you are probably in the establishment, I hate to say it, but um, certainly everybody at Harvard is. Parties, governments, but also the judges, of course, and also the media, and also the corporations. They're all the attack. And then Vox Pop, the voice of the people, is seen as the justification but of course, there are very few channels for the people to actually express themselves. When Donald Trump turns up at a rally, he wants their support, and he boasts about the size of the crowds, but <laughs> he never asks people to do anything except to turn up and applaud him, and maybe chant the chants, which then he repeats, etc., etc. There is no actions that follow from the rhetoric. That's why it's rhetoric. And the confusing thing about populism which took me forever to understand, I think, is that it's all upside down. They say they're talking about the voice of the people. They say they're going to empower the ordinary citizen, and quote, man on the street, Joe Sixpack, etc. the northern left behinds. But in fact, it isn't anything to do with that. That's the rationale, that's the cloak, that's the clothes that you'll put on in order to justify strongman rule, in order to justify authoritarian values and authoritarian practices. So, when you have populism, it isn't always a problem. I agree with Michael in that. It can be positive 
if, for example, the elite is corrupt, which they often are, of course you should be in favor of reforms. If the government is not responsive, of course you should be in favor of reforms. We're all Democrats, so we believe that. Problem is, what you get is often this, which is authoritarian values, going right back to the 1950s to understand what is authoritarianism. And it's essentially us, them, enemies and groups, tribes, and you've seen how tribal Britain has become. Again, us, leave, remain. And it's not that you've got opponents, and again, Michael writes about that, it's not, but they're treated as the other. Europe, Europe, France, Germany is treated as the other. Why? And, of course, it's reinforcing conventionalism, and so any threats from outsiders, whoever the outsiders are, is a problem, whether they're immigrants, whether they're refugees, whether they're uh, groups who are ethnic or, or, or sexual or gender minorities, foreigners, xenophobia, and then group loyalty. If you're under threat, if your group is under threat by them, then you have to defend yourself and the leader is going to speak for you. So there's a really interesting poll in America which asks people, do you think that Donald Trump is honest and trustworthy? Now, you might have thought, since the Washington Post has, has documented there's over 12,000 lies and counting, that most people would say, mm, not so much, right? Well, it turns out that 80% of Republicans think he's honest and trustworthy. Why? It's not, they kind of know that he's lying, just as they know, in fact, that Boris Johnson is mendacious. But they think he's speaking for us. And it's more important to have a leader speaking for us, the, the group who has not been represented, and the group who is culturally outside than it is to have another form of honesty, which is a form which is different. So this legitimates. Now, this is our big model. I won't go into it in depth because I have no time, whatever, I'm sure, and Andre is going to shut, shut me up any minute. But what I'm saying here is essentially, this is the big thing in the whole book. We start with the silent revolution. We start with Inglehart's classic work that started in 1977 and said that there's a rising tide amongst the younger generation and the educated from the 1960s onwards of more liberal attitudes. Liberal attitudes towards marriage and the family, towards religion and secularization, towards gender equality, towards diverse forms of sexuality, towards outsiders and immigrants and foreigners, towards pluralism and racial tolerance. And all of those are changes which date back from the 60s and led to, as he saw it, the, the silent revolution or post-material values, we've called it different things. So if that's the case, why on earth should there be this cultural backlash? So our simple answer is it's, it's a sense yin and yang. It's because that generation has been expanding in the population through demographic change. As they become middle-aged, they become an increasing share. They have liberal values. And those who are socially conservative have been under threat. Those who believe in America, in God and, and churches and religion, who believe in traditional marriage, not new forms of marriage, who believe that America should be white rather than diverse in its racial and ethnic and linguistic composition, that group has been under threat, particularly the older generation and the less educated, and particularly those who feel that they're not part of this. And so they see themselves essentially on the losing side of history. They see themselves through demographic change as a smaller and smaller population. They were the majority of America, they were the majority of Britain. And think about the sheer nostalgia of the appeals of Brexit. How apparently Britain is going to be global, even though we're leaving our closest partners. How we've suddenly got these dreams of empire. We're going to have these strong bonds with Australia. Well, great, but you know, France is a little nearer. Um, and uh, essentially what we're saying is that there's a tipping point 
and that as you were the majority and you become the new minority culturally, politicians who are liberal by and large don't seem to speak for you, nor does the Hollywood media, nor does your newspapers, who are all part of the elite and Oxford and Cambridge, uh, or the judges, etc., etc. And it's not that just that they feel that they're under threat, they are under threat because they're a smaller group in the population. Liberal values continue to rise. You can look at the British social attitude if you want to see any evidence. Conservative values continue to go down in America, in Europe, and in Britain. And that tipping point makes people angry because the things they care about, their identities, God, guns, and, gay, uh, and, and marriage, and so on, those sorts of things are under threat. And then they find a spokesperson who says, I'm going to speak for you. Washington isn't, your leaders aren't, the media isn't. And so there's an appeal there to that group, an appeal to the older generation, an appeal to those who feel that culturally they've been silenced through political correctness, but because their values are no longer in, in accord. Think about changes of racial attitudes in America, a transformation in our lifetime. Think about changes of attitudes towards gays and homosexualities and same-sex marriage, an amazing transformation in the last 10 years. But many people in smaller communities, older populations, don't agree. So that leads to the values conflict, and that in turn leads to a mobilization by elites. So this is supply side, as we call it, changes in the mass electorate, sociology 101, votes and elections matter. That's how the parties appeal to these groups or don't. And that's the supply side. And then all of that leads to, to the impact. Now I have no time to explain any of this, but how much more time do I have, Andre? Five minutes, maybe? Okay, let me give you some evidence, right? Because so far I've just given you blah, blah theory. What about the evidence? <laughs> well, um, if this is right, then when we look at survey data, we should find certain things predict whether you left, whether you voted leave or voted remain. And in particular, it should be by your attitudes and your values, authoritarian or populist, and it should be by socially conservative attitudes. Generation is going to be critical, education is going to be critical, Urbanization, which gives you a more diverse community, religiosity, etc., etc. What do we find? Well, I'm going to cut through that. Here's the evidence. So first I'm going to use the wonderful BES, thanks to everybody who collected it, because it's a panel survey, which is brilliant for everybody who loves to have changes over time. Fifteen waves so far of the same people from 2014 to 2019. So what do we find? Well, first let's think about measuring populism. And what you're looking for is measures which are um, valid for the concept, but aren't endogenous in terms of how somebody voted. So there's no point asking them, who do you support? And I love Farage, and therefore I'm whatever. So these questions, as you can see, are really pretty good at measuring populism and, and the concept that we think about. Politicians need to follow the will of the people, a classic claim. People, not politicians, should make decisions, right? Does that predict how somebody voted? Ah, yep, it does. This is the descriptive facts without any, um, without any um, uh, multivariate analysis, which I do have in the book, etc., but I won't bore you with. So this is the scale of populism. You put those items together, and you can see if you agree with that, 79%, overwhelmingly, 8 out of 10, would vote leave. What about authoritarianism? Now, here again, you want to have measures which are not endogenous. You, you can ask people about, do you like Europe? And then did you vote leave? But really, why bother? Because you know what the answer is going to be. It's circular. You can ask people about immigrants and tolerance of immigrants, but that's too circular. You need something a bit distant to what you're trying to explain. So what we have are these, again, wonderful questions, which were actually invented by Anthony Heath in 1992 for the BES. 
and their classic authoritarian values. They do not refer to the EU. They don't refer to policy issues. They don't refer to parties. It's things like children should be taught to obey. If the law should be obeyed even if it's wrong, censorship, etc., etc. Does that predict how somebody wanted to leave? Absolutely. Really nice, beautiful relationship. This is the scale. And we can see that the more authoritarian you were, the more you voted leave. Left-right, does that matter? We have some left-right scales. Quite simply, not so much. There is a left-right distinction, of course, but as you can see, it's mainly at that tail end, and, and there's much more, a smaller distribution uh, between those on the left and those on the right. It isn't predicting as much, and this is their own self-position in how do you see yourself. And of course, the other factors, we know the, the age gap is enormous, and it's enormous, by the way, also in voting for Trump, it's the largest age gap you've got. And here, of course, the interwar cohort, twice as many voted for leave as those who are millennials. The young people who are going to bear the brunt of these issues are the ones who have been excluded. You can, what, you can see the book um, Youthquake if you want to see more details. Class doesn't matter that much. That's to say, if it's the left behind economically, it should be those who are at the bottom of the class rungs. These are the classic ways to measure social grade by occupation. And we can certainly see there is a distinction, but it's between the middle class and all the other groups. It's not concentrated amongst the least well-off who would be sector E or D. Again, there's a difference, absolutely, but it's flat. And all that cliche, and again, I can show you exactly the same stuff for Trump. I'm afraid, as Jeff Evans has said, class does not really predict that much in British voting behavior anymore. And economic insecurity, what about that? That doesn't work very much either. A little bit, not much. So the conclusion, I'm going to stop. What drove leave voters? And the message is that yes, authoritarian and populist values do help to very much explain if you voted leave. Yes, generation is the new cleavage. Generation is the new class. Whenever I tweet that, everybody retweets it. I don't know why, but there we go. Um, reinforced by education. And again, in America, the way I describe that is, look, the kids um, in rural areas, they go to college in an urban area, they go to Chicago, or they go to Madison, or they go to Boston, and then they get jobs in those new communities, and they grow up in those new communities, and they're living in a diverse area, and through education they become more liberal, but their parents are left behind, and it's the age of those uh, profiles of the local communities which reinforces each other, but means that there's an enormous gap. But it's the age, not the economy, which matters. And young people, of course, reject most clearly nativism, nationalism, racial and ethnic intolerance, social conservatism. Now, does that work in every country? Our book looks at this for ESS, the European Social Survey. So it does seem to work across many countries, but there are exceptions. And particularly when you look at who supported, for example, in France or, or in Germany, who voted AFD, who voted uh, uh, National Rally. There are variations by country, but by and large, the generational cultural cleavage is what's driving Brexit and is driving this broader phenomena of populism. And other things don't work. It's not the unemployed, it's not manual workers, it's not the left wing and weak associations with economically insecure. So I won't go on. Um, I've got more stuff about parties, but I think that gives you the basic picture. Cultural backlash. And the backlash is an active reaction. Just like Einstein would say there's action and there's reaction, or Marx would say there's action and reaction. So there's a new way of, of moving. Now, in the long term, of course, there is a solution, which is, of course, the older generation dies, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> but as this tips, 
That's the tension, that's the conflict, that's the source of these issues. Because of course the liberals are now saying, hey, uh, I thought all these values, you remember when we said Obama, we're going to be in a post-racial society? Mm, never happened. And the liberals think, well, I'm losing Europe in Brexit. I'm using my rights to study in Erasmus or to, to travel or to work or to be part of the broader global community concerned with environmental change or justice. And the older generation is angry because they know that in the long term their values are under threat by these social changes. And the leaders and the parties are, if you like, the epiphenomena. They're the representation. They take advantage of this situation, but they're not the cause. It's the long-term social changes. And just, I, I sometimes end this talk and everybody's in gloomy silence because I say, well, what do you do? Um, mm, mm, I don't know. <laughs> because those changes will gradually change, but by that stage, uh, our liberal democracy might be deeply damaged, our social tolerance, our social trust, our feelings of a community, our country, as well as our European relations. I mean, there's so much at, at stake. That's why I'd love to be an optimist on this as well, Michael, but I'm still um, waking up at three in the morning to check my Twitter feed. What can I say? <laughs> Thank you very, very much, Pippa. I should add that um, nowadays we're all writing about populism. Pippa was writing uh, about populism long before it became fashionable. Uh, you can go back and see that her first paper uh, on populism uh, is, in fact, six months before Brexit. So um, she saw it coming, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm going to take the liberty to ask our panelists a question or two, maybe get a little dialogue going here. And then, uh, and then open it up for questions. We can run a little bit over 6.30, I'm told, so we're not that pressed for time. Uh, I want to begin with Michael. I, I think um, you're being handicapped, perhaps, Michael, by, by the fact that you come from a very reasonable country. Um, <laughs> not all countries are as reasonable. Um, you know, you're British, I am from Latin America. Of course, we invented populism. Uh, we're not getting our royalties, but, uh, you know, we have... Um, we have uh, the right to be a little bit more uh, cautious or perhaps even pessimistic. And in, in the following sense, you made, uh, and, and I'm going to simplify here, the case that yes, populism is all about the conflict between what you call the empire of politics and the um, empire of the law. Uh, and uh, this conflict is natural, it's sort of endemic in, in liberal democracy. And um, you really, you know, you're, go you're headed in the wrong direction when the Prime Minister says, ignores what the Supreme Court uh, tells him to do. So far we're in agreement. But then you appeal to a very um, hopeful corrective. Well, you'll have an election and the people, of course, will say that was wrong, we'll vote the man out of office and um, we're in good shape. The problem is, Michael, uh, that liberal democracy, the liberal part of liberal democracy, as you point out, is counter-majoritarian. So if a populist leader does something which the majority like, but which tramples upon the rights of the minority, and then you have an election, well, the minority is going to applaud because, in fact, it is the minority that is at the losing end. So should we really be so hopeful about the, uh, the majoritarian correction to the trampling upon the rights of the minority? Or is it just simply a Canadian uh, um, being Canadian about the world? It's... Wonderful to have your own words played back to you because you think, am I really so fatuously complacent? I mean, uh -oh. um, <laughs> and um, I don't think that uh, Canada, thank God, is less rational and reasonable than you suppose. We've had a near-death experience with um, 
the Canadian political culture, by the way, and, and that this does affect my view of liberal democracy, um, is about the survival of a political community that is stretched out across, you know, 5,000 kilometers and has two language groups, two religions, two systems of law. So our fatuous complacency has been hard-earned. We've been at this for 150 years, and our ingrained view of liberal democracy, you can never take it for granted for a second. The other thing we conclude is don't ever put existential questions to a referendum vote. <laughs> don't do it. We did right. it twice, and right. our country held on by a thread. So, so our sense of this is, what are you guys doing? You know, you're crazy. Nobody ever listens to Canadians. Why should you? But that's what we would have said. Um, I think that um, beyond that, um, um, my conclusion uh, is not terribly optimistic in the sense that I, I tried to define when this gets hairy, when this gets serious. And we're right up there in the next week, we, we could be there with a prime minister deciding that whatever the law says, whatever parliament says, whatever law lords say, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act on, you know, in the name of the people. And then he goes to the country and tries to win a we the people against the elites. And enormous, enormous damage is done. I, I take that as seriously as everybody in the room. I mean, I don't, and I don't think that plays out necessarily well. I think that it illuminates an issue that I think ought to concern anybody who loves liberal democracy as I do. I love the process. I love the intrigue. I love the institutions. I love the fact that you can't get anything done. I love all the things that are <laughs> difficult about it, right? Um, it is interesting how little the public loves the law, the rule of law, the law lords, um, the, arca the arcane rituals of parliament. This is where there is a gap between elite understandings of liberal democracy and popular understandings. Um, it's one of the places where uh, I think we should be concerned because in a situation where a prime minister breaks the basic system, the basic rules, the question that then becomes truly existential for the future of British democracy is whether ordinary British citizens up and down the country understand what the hell just happened and think that is not us. This is not about procedure. This is about whether we are a free people, period, right? And it's no longer about whether you voted Brexit, whether you voted Remain. It's what is the institutional bargain that keeps this bloody show on the road? And this guy has broken it. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a, it, we do not know, we do not know the answer to that question. I, I feel, as a passionate liberal Democrat, that the popular support for the institutions of liberal democracy, the complex mix of majoritarian and counter-majoritarian balances, the division of power, the, the power of the lords, European law, all this apparatus, what we haven't noticed is that the public comprehension of it and public support for it has drained away like water out of a bathtub. And we will then be in a situation where the the willingness of people to think the system is in play 
will, will be in question. And so, yes, I'm, I'm less complacently optimistic than I appear to be, because that's, we're, this country is coming to that moment of decision. And the electoral support for the institutions of liberal democracy may turn out to be much weaker than I suspect. I hope not. I mean, I hope not. I, 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 you know, one of, the, one of the great things about having been actively in poli politics and having been pounded a couple of times is that it really never pays to underestimate the electorate of a democratic society. It just never does. So let me just push you a little bit on that, perhaps going beyond Britain. And for the record, I, I certainly do not think that, that, that your posture was complacent and you know, certainly not fatuous. I simply worried about precisely what you worried about, namely um, the fact that referenda can often go the wrong way. And if we had you know, a referendum on the prime minister having done what the Supreme Court uh, told him not to do, how do we know that the referendum will go the right way? But let me maybe just uh, get you to think about Hungary for a minute. Pippa said at the very outset that uh, the demise of democracy under populism happens by a thousand cuts. In the UK, you outlined a very clear threshold. Maybe in Hungary, there was no one defining moment. Maybe it happened bit by bit, and Hungarians woke up one morning and said, oh, God, democracy is gone. Um, how do we think about that threshold, and how do we make sure that uh, we notice the threshold at the right time and not once it is too late. Mm. I think the threshold in Hungary was crossed very quickly in 2010 as soon as the Fidesz yes. government was elected. Yes. They gerrymandered the constitution, they changed the electoral law, they changed the media law, um, right. and uh, so that the attack on the university that I love leading uh, comes at the end of a long nine-year process that has one steady, very clear trajectory, which is the steady incremental day by day, day and hour by hour, consolidation of single party rule. Uh, and, and so um, I don't think this was death by a thousand cuts. They came in and knew exactly what they wanted to do, which essentially is to create a system in which they never lose an election again. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think there's, I don't think this is complicated. Uh, and I think it's, <laughs> here the alarming thing is that this has happened in an EU member state. The idea we had about enlargement and about creating a European Union was that the European Union institutions would create supranational constraints on the capacity of domestic political systems to do terrible, stupid things and go in permanently anti-democratic directions. And those external EU constraints have been terrifyingly weak. I mean, example, there is no juridical legal enforcement defense of academic freedom that an institution like mine can turn to to secure um, a remedy at law faced with a regime that's determined to throw you out of the country. So we've been thrown out of the country and we're going to go to Vienna where we're going, we're going to, you know, a perfectly stable liberal democratic paradise, as you know, where... where <laughs> where there is a far-right party, some of whom are just absolute Nazis. I mean, that's not, you know, so, so that's, the, that's the reality. Uh, and I don't want to, I mean, I'm a, I'm a pro-European, but nothing has been more disillusioning about the effectiveness of European institutions than living in Europe in the last three years. I wonder if I could come back to some of the points that Michael made about, in particular, trust. 
And that's a common assumption that, you know, everybody hates Parliament and the trust has gone down and that's a true it's thought in America, in particular with Congress. So uh, we, we've got a new project called TrustGov and we're challenging that assumption in a number of ways. Firstly, if you look at the trends, for example, in the Eurobarometer, and they always ask about trust in national institutions, what you find is, yes, they went down with the economic crisis of the Eurozone, which, of course, is when they should have gone down, and then they've come back up. So there has been more of a dip and then a recovery, which says that there's a kind of rational basis for performance, which might be part of this. And it's not that every institution's gone down equally. In America, the Supreme Court has always been pretty popular compared with Congress. Congress is where you see the sausage being made. Supreme Court in the past has been somewhat impartial. How that's going to develop, we'll have to see. And then the third thing is that it's not just that there's variations over time and variations across institutions, but also some of the countries which have seen some of these parties, of course, have very high levels of confidence. Sweden, I'm a classic case, right? Everybody loves all the institutions and democracy. And of course, they have uh, uh, the Swedish Democrat. And we, we have the same in Norway. And we have cases in very well-functioning democracies where we can see. So the idea that it's lack of trust automatically leads to populism or populist out parties is a bit too, too simple. And of course, here's the opposite, which we're trying to reconceptualize. It might be a compliance, not, not critical citizens. Compliance leads to these parties. It's those who trust too much the leader who's untrustworthy. It's those who think that they're speaking for us when they're not, they're just lining their own pockets. So um, we have a little model, of course, um, in which there's skeptical trust, where you're trusting a trustworthy uh, agent, that's great. There's mistrust where your, your government is, is hopeless, and that's also rational. Then you have compliance. China, for example. China expresses more confidence in democracy than Sweden. And that's oh, a variety of reasons for that. It's really interesting. But compliance is where you're trusting something which isn't necessarily trustworthy. And then you've also got those who are cynical when the tr there's a trustworthy object. And that's often less in America. Chile and Costa Rica. Let anyway, me, that's let me just, grass is always greener, I suppose. Can I just ask Pippa... This trust data, yeah. what does it predict in the hypothetical that uh, a prime minister um, defies an act of parliament or a constitutional ruling? Because then, it, then the issue is not, it's not trust exactly, and it's not trust in an, well, it's partly a trust in an individual. That is, it, a lot of this would turn on, do I trust this guy or don't? Right. Right. But there's some other ballot question, which is, am I willing to stand up on behalf of a, my understanding of democracy? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. when you run the, when you look at the numbers, what, what are you seeing that would help us predict what might right. happen? So here I would very much echo what you suggested, which is there's often a very incomplete understanding of liberal democracy. And that's true even in established liberal democracies as well as in um, countries which have not got any experience of this. So we have a little knowledge battery, which you believe, in the World Value Survey, which asks people, uh, what is the association associated with democracy? And is it equal rights to women? Check. That's fine. Is it elections? Check. The most popular assumption. But in lots of countries, they think democracy is about affluence, economic growth, stable state. They look at the democracies, and then they take those characteristics. And it's and the conversation over Brexit here has just been so striking. Whenever anybody says it's been the largest democratic exercise, da 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 da, they all take voting and somehow dem democracy, which of course it really isn't. There's so much else, and that partly, by the way, is an indictment of all of us who teach civics, um, and how we can actually get that understanding much more broad because it's very incomplete. Pippa, you you mentioned 
sort of the economic side, and I want to ask one thing about the culture versus economics uh, debate and then open it up for questions. I, I, I personally am very sympathetic to the idea that it cannot be all economics. Uh, if we go beyond the US and the UK, there are at least two big glaring facts. You mentioned one of them, namely that uh, in a country like the Philippines or a country like Turkey, economic growth has been nearly 7% per year for the last decade. Hungary's uh, been good. Yeah, Hungary's about been three, three and a quarter. So clearly economic stagnation need, is, is not a, uh, neither a necessary or a sufficient condition to get populism. Mm -hmm. The other thing, of course, is that if inequality were really at the root of populism, we'd be getting left-wing populism, and we're mostly getting right-wing populism. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they, so they yeah, they hate redistribution by and so, large, most of the groups. Having said that, let me now argue the other side of the equation very briefly and ask you a question. Um, some of the things you mentioned, like authoritarian cultural attitudes, mm -hmm. have been around forever, right? right? Right, And populism, at least this version of populism, is new. So typically, you know, we want to explain something new with a variable on the right-hand side that, that, that changed. Right. So I, some people in this room who do the sort of the econometrics of all of this would say, well, you really have to interact it with some economic value to put, you know, sort of exemplify uh, the, uh, the story. Yes, of course, you know, people uh, in um, cultural conservatives were naturally sort of upset but they really became upset when there was a world financial crisis and the bankers got bailed out, or when you moved to a winner-take-all economy, uh, economy so that the rich really became much, much richer. Uh, in your story, there's no role for economics. There's a role for economics that gets interacted with culture. Uh, how do we think about that? So, yes, we see both the refugee crisis of the... Angela Merkel started with Germany, and then again the issue of the economic downturn with the Eurozone crisis is catalyzing um, short-term period effects. And that's clear that those two things, and again, think about the timing of the, of the 2016 referenda. I mean, the worst ever to hold Brexit, right? Because it seemed like refugees were pouring over borders and Europe couldn't control it, and the economic crisis was, was hurting lots of countries, but particularly Spain and Greece and many other countries where you can see some of these phenomena. But the story is, is again, if these things have come back, and again, refugee, if you look at the Eurobarometer, at the concern, we ask the most important problem, Refugees has gone down, of course, because the number of refugees has, has gone down, even though it's still a, a real problem, of course, with uh, all sorts of deaths in the Mediterranean. And again, with the economy, we've had growth, growth, growth. I mean, the idea that you can explain Trump on the basis of the economy is bizarre when you think that we have the lowest unemployment since the year dot. We have high levels of, uh, of uh, stability, and most people are feeling pretty good, even though there are pockets which have gone down in manufacturing industry. So... Um, I think what happened in some ways is that those contingent factors helped at the time to explain it. And economists wanted to say economics matter, right? I mean, of course they would. That's their job. Um, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Well, no, sociologists wouldn't necessarily, <laughs> so that's the point. Um, but there's a lot of counter evidence. And therefore, the fact that it's not simply the Eurozone, after all, Britain has not been part of the Eurozone. Um, and, and it's a complicated story. We're not saying it's nothing, but we're not saying it's more than an accelerant. And again, think about the timing of the changes. We're saying these are changes that started in the 80s, and the dynamics comes from the population, the changes in the population, and the changes in those with those values in the population. So it's a compositional effect, if you like, um, which is really critical. And the, and the tipping point, which we know about, not just from Gladwell, but from other phenomena, where as you go from a large majority to a balanced majority to a smaller what your attitudes and values and how angry you get at that change, that you feel your identity is being taken from you. Um, have we documented it totally? No. 
because it's a very complex process. But I think that's certainly our explanation for the dynamics of change. Thank you very much. I know I will get scolded if I don't open it up to Q&A, so I will. The gentleman there in uh, the blue jacket. Okay, so neither of you said much about the distinction between right-wing and left-wing populism. So I wonder if you could just sort of say something briefly about that and just follow up, really. I've just finished um, Chantal Mouffe's book about left populism. And her argument in a, in a single sentence is that the only way we can resist right-wing populism is to adopt a left-wing populist agenda. So I wonder if you could just say whether you agree with that analysis or not as well. Thank you. <coughs> Do you want to take a few questions first? Or? Uh, yeah, let's take a couple. Okay. Uh, yes. Uh, one in the white. Okay. Uh, microphone is coming. There we go. You talked a lot about trust, but it's particularly in the dip, like the fact that the smaller minority government, which is feeling challenged, is the one that's voting all of these people in. I've always kind of seen that people of like millennials and that kind of era are starting, they've trusted too much that the institutions will protect against this backlash. So now that it hasn't protected against it, do you think the level of trust that people have in institutions is going to dip if like the prime minister does disagree with the Supreme Court in that kind of? Going to be ecumenical. We took one from this block, one from that block. We'll take this one in the back there. I, I see a, a, black, a hand with a black sleeve. The microphone is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Shelley from the Institute of Global Affairs. I'm also a fellow with the Harvard Kennedy School. The question is, um, we're, we're, talking about, we're talking about the um, conflict between democracy or liberal elitist democracy with populist democracy. But the primary war for democracy is actually not against the populism, but rather against the authoritarianism. And recently we have seen not only the rise of populism in democratic world, but also rise of, authoritarian, uh, rise of populism in authoritarian world, both on the left and on the authoritarian right. So. As uh, the authoritarian world is uh, using populism uh, to, to uh, uh, lever basically uh, with its power, then is elitist the democracy up to the job to fight and contain against the rise of authoritarianism? Barack Obama tried to do it, um, maybe Bill Clinton before him. And um, these people, I would say, has not been effective in in checking the rise of authoritarianism. So the question is, in this future world, do we want to live with a populist democracy that is effective in checking against authoritarianism, or do we rather live with an elitist democracy that's not up to the job at all? Let's take those three, give our panelists a chance to uh, respond. So, uh, so if I can respond on the left-right. I'm abandoning the use of words left-right. Um, I think it confuses as much as clarifies, and all my party people get very confused when I say that. Uh, also, we're not just talking about a phenomenon which is about parties, it's also social movements, it's also media, lots of things are populist, it's also leaders. This is how we depict the world in terms of the new cleavages, and it's almost like a re realignment along the Rockin arguments. You've got new issues, and what it is, is you're dividing those who have authoritarian values from those who are libertarian, and in, that can be seen as left-right, but that confuses the economics. And then you also have those who are pluralist and those who are populist. And you can operationalize this in ways which are really great fun, if you like that sort of thing. What you have here are parties in 2017 from data done by the Chapel Hill Expert Survey. And we've got the pluralists in this 
quadrant, the populists over there, the libertarians here, and the authoritarians at the top. And I've highlighted the fact that we've got uh, parties from Britain all over the place, more or less in a logical position, and you also have whether or not they're left, right on the economics in colour. So in fact, you have a um, not just a, a two-way distribution, but you actually have a, um, a, a really complex issue and then the size as well. And the point is, just to make it short, that you do obviously get those who are libertarian like Podemos and who are also populist and trying to have genuine new forms of participation, but there aren't that many of them. That quadrant uh, has some, and uh, one can argue about where they should be. This is the group which is the most uh, authoritarian and, and also populist, and that's, of course, where you find UKIP. Nowadays, you'd find Brexit, but also the Swedish Social Democrats, Hungarian Jobbik, um, uh, uh, Netherlands, etc., etc., PVV, and Slovakians. And then over here, what you find is much more traditional authoritarians and not, not so populist. DUP, I think, is exactly that kind of position. So there's new cleavages, to put it short, in short. And understanding it just as left-right doesn't really help a lot uh, in what we're trying to do, although Latin America, of course, has a long tradition through the 70s and 80s of, of left-wing so, um, populists in various ways. Right. We're doing our best to develop now a right-wing populist, um, mm. you know, right. taking after the uh, uh, great example of Europe. Michael. Yeah. I mean, just a thought about Chantal Mouffe and left-wing populism. Um, a political movement, progressive on the left, whatever that means, that was redistributive, egalitarian, um, focused on... Um, strong taxation measures in relation to climate change but was also constitutional accepted the division of the division of power accepted the authority of judges that's a swallow for some left wing for all kinds of historical reasons um, in other words, a left-wing populism that was genuinely at home with the rule of law, with all its imperfections, and put that together with a redistributive, climate-focused, progressive, egalitarian agenda, and then <laughs> was a populism that mobilized a we without demonizing a them, right? You got something. What's not to like? What's not to, what's not to like? But Notice the way, how tough that is, right? But it, it's it, really, it's it, actually a very complicated Venn diagram to get that all right. <laughs> if you could get that right, sign me up, but I haven't seen it. Well, I haven't it, seen it. I may be describing form. a unicorn. That's, that's, yeah. that, that's the problem. The, and it kind of connects to the second question in a way. I, I think it's very important that a lot of young millennials, um, young um, members of our society from diverse and pluralist communities are disillusioned with the rule of law, disillusioned with institutions because they feel they're not protected. And that's an enormous challenge. A, a left populism that spoke to them and said, we're not going to do class war, guys, because that's just nuts. We've got to anchor liberal democracy in a 
in a pluralist, egalitarian, redistributive, climate change-focused politics that brings us together and doesn't play us and them games might do something to reassure. But we don't have it. I don't see it anywhere. So that's that's two. And as for the third thing about... Uh, before, you, before you change subjects, can I <coughs> uh, ask you to elaborate on one thing? The us versus them thing is, of course, very, very key. Having maligned Canada now, I've got to say a good thing about Canada, and I will with great conviction. Some people would say, I would say, that one of the countries that, in fact, has done the job best of building a national identity, which is not predicated on race or class, but on the idea that being Canadian is all about being inclusive and open-minded, you know, in, the, in this sense, Canada, you know, could be sort of an example for the world. Um, should we think about Canada in those terms? You know, uh, you know, the current prime minister has actually been quite articulate in, along those lines. Mm -hmm. Yes, the good the good news is we are in the middle of a experiment which is trying to mobilize a we without demonizing a them. Right? It's a, a neat yes, trick. Absolutely. Um, and my conservative political opponents when I was in, in politics were super smart about that. The conservative end understood a pluralist society. We got to go fishing for votes with all of the diverse communities in a diverse, right? So that was terrific. The, and it was tough for me because they were beating me at the business of recruiting those new groups. But hallelujah, that's a sign of a healthy political system I think the thing I said earlier I would emphasize, what concentrates the mind in Canada are two facts. One, we were next door to the gorilla. I mean, that concentrates every mind. But secondly, we're a binational community. This thing could come apart at any moment. So polarization is existential very quickly. In America, because you had a civil war in 1865, uh, and, and the union is perpetual and beyond question, the level of political hostility and violence in that country is just inconceivable to a Canadian because we're just, we can't afford that. So there's a kind of caution built into the political system. In other words, the story that we're so bloody nice and good misses the dread, misses the fear that we could, you know, we, we could blow, blow it up. And we've come very close to blowing ourselves up. Um, so we've learned some painful lessons about us and them, nous autres, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. Um, the, the point about the authoritarian thing that I, I, I would say, I think that's a hugely important frame of this, is that we are sitting in a world where liberal democracy is having a very difficult time sustaining itself even within the European Union, example, Hungary, we're facing a world of ascendant authoritarianism, chief exhibit China. The idea that we had that liberal liberalization of the economy would produce liberalization of the political system turned out to be wrong. And the part of this, and, and so then the question becomes how you create a liberal democracy that is resolute, strong, and is tough on China without blowing up the global economic system is a puzzle we're all kind of thing. The piece of this that I see very vividly is the deep ingrained institutionalized collusion of liberal democracies with authoritarian regimes like China. And, and the city of London is the locus classicus of that. The offshoring of 
assets secured in authoritarian regimes in rule of law countries is a story we need to understand. Countries without rule of law create powerful incentives among their elites to offshore their ill-gotten gains in rule of law countries because that makes them safe from seizure by the authoritarian regimes. So we end up in a situation where London is propping up Beijing, Shanghai. And we do, little to- we do a little talking about how terrible the authoritarian regime is in China, but we're in, we're in with these regime hook, line, and sinker. There's collusion between free societies and authoritarian societies, and that's the thing we, we're going to have to unbundle. Well, here at the LSE, we did our bit to try to offset that. Last year, graduation, we gave uh, an honorary doctorate graduation to one of the leading activists for civil and human rights in Hong Kong. So, um, you know, we undid the collusion maybe just a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. Questions, questions. Lots of questions. In the second row there, please. Is this working? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, it was interesting that Pippa said that uh, essentially populism was going to die out because all the old people died. Um, <laughs> basically, uh, I, I was reading something by, I think, Matthew Goodwin, National Populism, and essentially his argument, part of it is that populism is a long-term trend. It's happened historically with, like, farmers in America, I think. It's going to continue in the future and slash or it's going to make, like, conventional parties adopt populist tactics. So from that, my question would be, do you think that populism would last in the long run as Goodwin outlines, or do you think it will just die out? Here in the front? Yes. Uh, Microphone, please. You sped over the importance of, or non-importance of populist leaders as you were showing your various things. I, I know it's not fashionable. I, too, don't like to think that leaders have that much input. However, it seems to me that if our current lab, uh, leader of the Labour Party was a little more charismatic in the way that Michael has defined in the possibilities of the left, and if uh, the leader of America were in such an, an easy ego ideal for a great many television watchers, mm-hmm. we might be in a very different situation. Right. So, right. In the blue T-shirt in the back there. Um, can the threat of national populism be alleviated through concessions made by the liberal elite? And if it could, what would those concessions look like? Um, Pepper, you, you would say, you say that this cultural backlash is finished when old people die. Is this the approach <laughs> you should be looking at? Yeah. <laughs> Literally a fight to the death of social liberals and social conservatives. <laughs> can we find an equilibrium within society? Right, we are going to ask our panelists to provide maybe somewhat briefer answers. Sure. We can have one more round before we conclude. Pippa. So the age effects we predict are long-term, but by long-term what we mean is if you think about population changes, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. As the, for example, think about the social rise of social liberalism, the silent revolution. That was something that started in the 60s with all sorts of different changes in values and attitudes, the hippie generation, Woodstock, etc. It's taken a long time to move into the major, more, more majoritarian position, and therefore we're talking about secular plates in society that shift on a gradual basis. Um, 
And as they shift, they'll bring consequences, and sometimes you go down a path which is very difficult to go back. And in particular right now, the cultural uh, conflict is so much reducing social tolerance and social trust, and I don't know how you build that back up. I really don't, especially in the societies which are, are so divided, which includes majoritarian systems which reinforce social intolerance because they say it's winners, losers, etc., etc. So I didn't really mean that just because old people die that it will change things. But, but demography and composition is something we don't often... We think that values change over time as a result of people changing their minds. But the generational argument, the cohort argument, says, no, you get your values and you carry them with your lifetime, but then people in the population change. So it's who's in the population, that's the key thing. Um, second question is about leaders, and of course leaders matter. I mean, if, if Trump had just not got Wisconsin, etc., we might have Madam President, and I wouldn't be here, and I wouldn't have written the book, and we wouldn't be so worried. So leaders matter, but leaders are also the product. So we had, of course, the National Front in the 1970s, and leaders there, and the BNP, they didn't get anywhere. Why not? Because, of course, there wasn't the mass support. Why not? Because of all the factors that we're talking about, which lead that. So having leaders and followers is critical, and particularly what really matters is how the parties and leaders respond to each other. And here we've got ideas like pariah or parrot. Do you basically keep these groups to one side and say they're not part of a coalition, they're not part of the mainstream, or do you try and bring them on board and then they influence immigration policies and they influence other policies as well, and refugee policies? And you can certainly see both strategies at work in Europe. And this is playing out as more of these parties get into government. And so far we haven't had that many who've really wield power in coalitions or in, um, even in power more generally. But as that plays out, we'll see what, how, these strategies, how these strategies work. And then the threat of, of, of populism, I think, was the first question, which is long-term change. Um, and, and these things are getting worse and not better. And for me, I also, by the way, just as an anecdote, think what happens, for example, if Trump wins the next election in America? What structural changes will he bring to reinforce all of these value shifts? What, what's going to happen on the Supreme Court, for example, both to uh, make it much more partisan in values and also to shift it towards the right? What's going to happen to the state in terms of the uh, civil service and, the, and the, the ways that that's been changing, the public sector? And what's going to happen to uh, civility and, and, and dialogue and all the other things that America used to be so fond of as a pluralist society? So you get a change which is the result of society, but then the leaders and the events go down a path and then you can't get back. And I think that's exactly the case of Brexit as much as it is what's happening in America, as much as it is the Hungarian example. You change the electoral law and then you're on a path which you can't get back from. Mm -hmm. So it's triggering, triggering points. Michael. I'm fine, we might take another. All right. All right. The gentleman by the wall. Oh, thank you. Uh, I just wonder whether the panel will agree with me that populism is not new, started with Basel Declaration. Mm -hmm. And if you remember the case of migration of uh, uh, Zionist scheme in Israel. And secondly, if you look at Modi, same situation in case of India where uh, denigrating the minority, which is about 20%. Mm -hmm. And the present Israeli elections, if you look at the case of Netanyahu, so populism is not old and it's not dead yet. Can you comment on this? Good. I'm trying to be ecumenical. I'm looking at for I'm looking for a hand in the center block, but there are none. <laughs> okay, center block gets out. 
Uh, one at the back here on the left, please. Typical right, Brexit. Strap jacket. Hi, um, I'm a Spanish student in the Master in Public Administration, so as you can guess, I'm going to bring to the table the issue with Catalonia. Because uh, more than the issue, the reaction to what happened. Mm. Because as it be, it's been said, probably we shouldn't leave existential questions to a referendum. But, but the, the reaction of the um, Spanish government was putting the constitution on every, in everybody's face and um, try to react to a problem of identity and feelings, uh, talking about law and democracy. But it's very legal and very... Um, reasonable probably, but I don't think it, br it brought a uh, good uh, result. After all these years, maybe um, independent parties or independent uh, people pro-independency in Catalonia have relaxed a little bit, but they, we haven't win or earned any support to the un union of the nation. So my question is, how should we handle such a complex situation? Is it possible to run a referendum with certain conditions as has been also proposed before or is it better to ignore this kind of um, um, exigencies right from a region one more question young man in the green um. oh, thanks for the uh, professor's lectures and my question is that uh, we seen that the population parties, they are so fashionable. They can, they know how to use, they are good at uh, using the social medias, like Facebook, Twitter, or something like that. But some traditional party, they, they don't know how to use, or they are not so popular on the internet. And this kind of new method can attract more supporters. Mm -hmm. And another question is that uh, many traditional parties, they lose the election, and they claim that we have the more supporters, but many of our supporters didn't go to vote for us. But the uh, populism parties, they can attract more supporters, and their supporters will, uh, do the election, vote for them exactly. So my question is that why the traditional parties, they have more supporters, but their supporters didn't vote for them, and why they cannot to learn to be more fashionable to attract uh, internet uh, supporters. It is my questions. Okay. Let's begin with uh, Michael, shall we? Lessons from Quebec for Catalonia. Uh, <laughs> well, there you have a, a really substantial democratic crisis that could reach a breakpoint. Uh, I, I defined, I tried to define a breakpoint in the Brexit case, but the case in Catalonia will may occur when the Spanish court pronounces a judgment or does the sentencing on the on the insurrection case in in Catalonia and there I think the the message that I find illuminating about that you remember I made a distinction between the empire of law and the empire of politics I just think that the Spanish recourse to law probably inevitable, is tremendously dangerous because this is a conflict that can only be sorted out within the empire politics. That is to say, <coughs> if there is zero chance that a Catalonian independent state would be recognized by Europe, that is, if there is zero chance, which I believe there is, 
for there to be an independent Catalan state that would be recognized by the international community. And if, on the other hand, uh, the Spanish uh, unitary nationalism of Franco is a past to which Spain cannot return, okay, you got to talk. The only thing Canadians learn is you talk for 40 years. It's not, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. You waste a lot of time. You know, it's just hopeless. But you talk it out and talk it out until exhaustion occurs, until people come up with clever little words that paper over differences, and you get on to something else. Um, but I find the legalization of this in the Spanish case um, sets up a, a potential breakpoint. And I think all Europeans need to look at this very carefully because this is a country that had a civil war. Right. And of all the horrors you want to avoid, a civil war is number one. Yeah. Uh, anything is better than that. So talk, 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 talk forever. And it takes tremendous courage for Catalonians to get into a room with Spaniards at the moment and, and vice versa. But that's the only way out of this thing. Mm -hmm. um, as, for the, as for the question about the media, you know, it's just because people who used to run political parties like me are just old and out of it and don't understand anything. I, I think the thing about social media, though, that interests me is two things, what I would call digital disinhibition. I shook 30,000 hands in my political career. I'm sure that he shook a lot of hands. The interesting thing about direct face-to-face -face contact with human beings in the political sphere is I can count on the number, on one hand, the number of times I had an unpleasant <laughs> personal experience, right? They didn't vote for me. That's why I'm here, right? <laughs> they didn't vote for me, but they didn't, you know, they didn't, it was fine. Switch to the media, switch to digital media, and it was a sewer. The stuff said about me was so difficult, I, I just didn't want to get out of bed, so I didn't read it for five years. That's called digital disinhibition, and it's fatal to democracy. It's absolutely fatal to democracy. And then there is the other phenomenon we know very well, which is just you have your feed and she has her feed and they never meet. And so you absolutely do not have a common public sphere. And that's an enormous problem. And I'm more concerned about digital disinhibition than I am about anything else. Yeah, I, I only shook 28,000 hands, but I had exactly the same experience, maybe three unpleasant moments and lots of very respectful people who didn't vote for me either, but um, at least they were very kind. Pippa. So uh, is it new? Is populism new? Absolutely not, of course, because we have had Perron, we've had Fujimori, we've had all sorts of Latin America specializes in, in populism. And even in uh, American presidents, one can think of Wallace, one can think also, there's a nice study that looks at the rhetoric that people use. Carter used populist rhetoric, Reagan used populist rhetoric. So it's not brand new. What's different, I think, is more the authoritarianism and going mainstream. And that's something which is much riskier. And again, that's nothing new, of course. We can go right back to the Second World War and think about the different trends in different countries and traditional authoritarianism. But authoritarianism masquerading as a form of democracy, that, I think, is what turns us all upside down. 
That's why we find it difficult to criticize this thing, because on the one hand, should we be more democratic and have more people involved? Who could be against that? Voice of the people, brilliant. But when it actually disguises um, the, the reduction of human rights and, and problems of tolerance and all those other issues that come along with it, that's when one has to say, all right, they're saying one thing, they're doing something else. So in our book, we say basically, look at what they, how they act, look at what they do, not don't look at their words, because their words confuse. Um, but it's not new. Is Modi a populist? Absolutely, he's a national populist, but he's become more so, I think, over time, particularly with the Kashmir, a very dangerous situation, Hindu nationalism. And the last thing on social media. Um, essentially, all small parties use social media much more than large parties. They're much more adept. We found that from the Digital Divide book. But what also is happening is, of course, the bubbles. It's the fact that the media bu bubble is so easy to just be part of the in-group.